Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Julian Uggen. Julian is a Chamorro human rights lawyer and defender from Guam. He's the founder of Blue Ocean Law, a progressive firm that works at the intersection of indigenous rights and environmental justice and serves on the Council of Progressive International, a global collective with the mission of mobilizing progressive forces around the world behind a shared vision of social justice. He lives in the village of Yona, and his debut book is No Country for Eight-Spot Butterflies. And it's a pleasure to be joined by Julian for this episode of The Deep Dive. How are you, my friend? I'm well. Thank you so much, Philip, for having me on the show. I'm stoked to be here. I couldn't wait to to have this conversation. You know, we exchanged some notes, I, I believe it was toward the end of last year, to 2022. And here we are in 2023 with the opportunity to finally discuss your book, No Country for Eight Spot Butterflies. And, you know, as I was going through the book, it has these lyrical quality to it. It's not just one expression. I found that it was many expressions. There are anecdotal stories, there's there's essays, there's poems, there's some things that read like sermons. I, I, I just was really blown away by the by the depth and the scope of, of what you put together in a book in terms of the number of pages that isn't that much, right? So there's a, you know how people will pick up a book and be like, oh man, War and Peace, this is a thick fucking book, right? Like your book has a depth to it that the number of pages cannot tell the story. Mm. So I wanted to give you an opportunity at the at the very beginning of our conversation to kind of address the depth that you managed to pack into the pages that you did. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate that question. Really, it is a short book. I think it's 128 pages or so. Yeah, I say in the introduction that what I believe connects these otherwise disparate pieces is not their subject matter, but their spirit. And so like, I call it a spirit of insistence. What I mean by that is that they all in their own way insist on life, no matter the hour, even at the hour of death. Um, and I, there is a lot of death in the book. There's a lot of grief in the book. Um, I'm really navigating a whole host of loss, really. Personal loss, collective loss. Um, the book was written at the height of the pandemic. The, the, you know, Guam is a colony of the United States and my people, the indigenous Chamorro people, are experiencing and suffering from a wide range of adverse impacts. So there is definitely a lot of grief, but I really wanted to write a book that sort of celebrates, you know, who we are as a people. So I talk a lot in the book. I traverse a whole wide range of losses, personal loss, collective loss, loss from COVID, loss of my father to pancreatic cancer. Um, I just talk a lot about grief in the book, but I also wanted to show that there can be this other thing that's still alive in all of that grief, you know, and it's that. And so I write pieces 
that pay attention to beauty, that celebrate a child's sense of wonder, pieces that I hope cultivate in the reader a capacity to access abundance. And I and I try to do that, whether it's in a eulogy or commencement address. So in some ways it's kaleidoscopic because it actually touches, you know, so many different moments in one's life, in our lives. Um, and in that way, the pieces are all disconnected, but they are connected, I believe, you know, in that spirit. Um, I don't know what if, you, if that makes sense to you as a reader. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what I'm trying to capture when I say there's like a lyrical quality to it in the sense that if you think of, of any great piece of music, even music that at first listen doesn't sound connected, it is connected. Yeah. Right? So you, you start to pick up these threads and this insistence and... One of the things that that really stood out to me was definitely the element of grief, but not in the traditional way in which we think about grief as something that is final, but rather it seemed in the pieces where grief was centered, it was something that was part of a bigger story. I agree with that. Honestly, in hindsight, I think what I was arguing, albeit implicitly, in the book was that too often grief functions as a wall, you know? Yeah, and I tried to essentially um, sort of, I guess, employ, was Angela Davis's insight when she said once that walls turn sideways are bridges. And so I had sort of that Angela Davis idea in my mind. And I was like, I wondered if I could in fact transform my grief, you know, from a wall into a bridge. And I, you know, and I did. It really was a bridge that allowed me to make a certain kind of crossing. And in that way, I was hoping that it would help all young people everywhere, especially young people facing things such as climate despair and anguish, you know, find like access something beyond that, you know, and make a crossing of their own. Um, and I think that's important, you know, like when we like write about grief or heavy topics such as climate change, that we find a way to communicate the harm, but that still preserves this space, you know, for joy and abundance and beauty. And I think that's the other theme. If I have to really sort of like hone in on what possibly could be another theme that connects all the pieces is this insistence on beauty, you know, or the celebration of beauty where it has survived brutality. And I think that is another connective thread. You know, I think it's interesting as well, because so many of the ideas that you're putting on the table, they are viewed so differently in what I would call spaces where there are people of color versus in industrialized and, and Western spaces. And, and what I mean by that is like, as you're talking about grief and I think about the way in which in the black tradition, for example, it's called like a homegoing mm. rather than like a funeral, right? There's all these rites mm. of passage when physical bodies leave us, right? And I think our our communities are very in tune with joy, which is something in, in the way I think about joy that comes out of struggle. It's very different and unique from happiness. <laughs> happiness is a very Western concept to me, right? Tied to like branding and Coca-Cola and stuff like that, right? And, and joy is different. Definitely. Happiness is you know, been like almost wholly 
made into a commodity. I mean, joy is something so different. Joy cannot be commodified. I mean, it is just this insistence, you know, it's stubborn. It's like something that grows up between the crevices of a rock, you know, and it, it, that's what it is. And that's what I'm trying to do in the book. I'm really trying to access that and help young readers particularly access that because we need that. We need that. We need hope like that, real hope and hope that is earned, you know, earned in struggle. Yeah. And your life is very much one of service, right? Like it, it feels like the struggle that you that you talk about both in the book and implicit and explicit, right? Because I could, one, read the words, but also I read your bio. Like I can go between the lines and kind of get a, 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 a point of what's happening. And that also struck me that there is that earning that you talked about, that earning of joy comes from service, um, service in your community, service toward the planet. And I'm curious, how did that manifest in you to get you to do be doing the work that you are now? Wow. No, I <laughs> thank you for that. Um, I do. You know, I believe that service, you know, is the highest station. You know, it's just the, the work that we're really called to do, you know, is serve each other, serve others. I mean, and I think that's what I'm trying to sort of point to in the book as well. I mean, you know, Indigenous peoples, uh, you know, and, and our access to collective memory really sort of an, affords us our unique capacity to resist despair, you know, and I think that is just really important work. And when I, when, when I think of service, I think of it in a much more indigenous sort of way where it's in service of all beings, all, you know, not just human beings, but also our other than human relatives, the totality, you know, of life here. And that's like why when I work on climate change, um, for example, um, my law firm, we work uh, very seriously on climate justice you know, issues. Um, even at the moment, we are serving as lead counsel to the Republic of Vanuatu, which is a Pacific Island country that is pursuing an advisory opinion on climate change and human rights from the International Court of Justice. But all of, the, you know, in all of those cases, in all of that work, I do see it that way. So it's nice that you picked up on that. I do see it as service. I, maybe it was Alice Walker, I can't remember, who said, my activism is the rent I pay to live on this beautiful planet. You know, and that's sort of what I sort of see all of this, you know, whether it's legal work or literary work. I mean, it is really about trying to be in good relationship with others, you know, with the earth, with each other, is trying to bring forth our gifts and contribute to the world treasury and add richness to it. I mean, and so that's what I, and I also believe like all the various endangered species, like our AIDS ball butterfly here in Guam, which is currently in danger because of a US military live fire training range complex. I believe that indigenous peoples the world over are also endangered. I mean, we are, you know, being pushed. So many of us the world over are being pushed, you know, to the brink. And we are, we have our arms wrapped around the earth, our particular piece of this planet. And we were stewarding it. We were trying to protect it from deforestation or extractive industries. Like we are, we understand that the imagination that got us into this mess will not be the one to get us out of it. And so we are trying to, you know, have different conversations. Um, we are trying to broaden, you know, the global conversation about environmental justice to be so much more than it is, than it has been. And I, I want to talk specifically about the butterfly. I do want to talk about the militarization of, of Guam. 
but I'm going to hold those for a second. So I'm putting it in a universe so I don't forget. <laughs> and, you know, because um, I have a, a lot of notes here and those things are part of it. But I, and even though you've referenced them, I, I do want to jump into another point that you made, jump back to another point where you highlighted this idea about a bridge, you know, from, from Angela Davis, right? Walls on their side can become bridges. And I'm thinking so much about the geography of Guam relative to not only the rest of the world, but even where I am, right? I'm, I'm sitting on a Thursday night in Brooklyn, right? And you're sitting on a Friday morning in Guam, right? Mm -hmm. Incredible geographic distance between us, but your work has served as a, as a bridge, right? And to put us in conversation with one another. And I think so much about the work you just described and indigenous people stewarding and wrapping themselves around the earth, as, as you so eloquently put it. How do we use these moments to continue to build these bridges despite our different geographies and our different set of circumstances? When the opposing forces, I'll say opposing forces, I usually say things like enemy, you know, <laughs> but I'm trying to be more kind on a Thursday night. Um, given the, the opposing forces assailed against all of us, you know? So I want to really capture that bridge idea because I feel your work serves as one of those bridges. Thank you. I mean, that's the, you know, that's, there's nothing better, you know, for writers to hear, you know, that the words that we've written, you know, the language that we've used can be a bridge, you know, and in some ways books are bridges just in general. Like, I mean, so much of my own intellectual sort of and political commitments have been partly formed, you know, by my own sort of like by a variety of scholars in a variety of traditions, resistance traditions, you know, um, I call them the, you know, the canons of resistance. I mean, like all of that, like, and that you can tell that that's pretty evident in the book. I draw on a wide range of inspiring sort of literary and political luminaries. But yes, I, I think bridge building is the, you know, the work of the day. I mean, I think solidarity, I think internationalism, you know, that is rooted in uh, simultaneously in a respect for difference, but also an awareness of shared circumstances, like both are needed. And we have different things to contribute, but we are all suffering sort of from the same calamity that's at our doorstep, climate change being the greatest example of sort of this like flattening of difference in some ways, because it's it's coming for all of us, you know, and it's put us all on an unforgiving timeline. We are out of time and we have to do all of it at once. You know, it's like everything everywhere all at once. It's all of it. It's overwhelming, but the only way we can do it is to do it together, you know? And when I say, how do we operationalize those ideas? For example, not all of us are similarly situated geographically or otherwise, you know, but certain communities are frontline communities, you know, for example, certain, you know, developing countries, small island, developing states, SIDS, these are like, these communities are frontline communities. Um, yeah, we need to like run to their rescue. You know, we need to and I, I immediately mobilize resources, you know, for those frontline communities. And we need to do a really, and not sacrifice anyone. That like, I mean, there's so much sort of work that needs to be done, but it's also a really exciting time to be alive precisely because we are seeing the gradual and increasingly rapid deterioration of the silos that so many of us have long worked under. You know, we've 
just, you know, worked in these silos for so long, but, you know, all of the, the young, especially youth, led movements are breaking those silos down. I mean, you know, people are understanding and implementing in their intersectional uh, intersectional analysis, you know. We are coming for when we when we say we're fighting for climate justice, we are often almost always invariably saying we are fighting for racial justice. We're fighting for, you know, in the, you know, respect, recognition, um, protection of indigenous rights. I mean, you know, there's so many cases right now going not just Vanuatu's pursuit of an advisor opinion from the ICJ, but even domestically, even across the U.S., you know, the continental U.S. where you live. Like, I'm thinking right now of the Manumin versus Minnesota case right now, where, you know, the White Earth Band of Ojibwe have sued, you know, the state of Minnesota for approving a permit. So, like, the, the named plaintiff is Wild Rice, you know, Wild Rice with its own standing. You know, and there's, like, all of these sort of legal innovations, all of this all of this intersectional work, I mean, the tribe is doing work for themselves. They're protecting their wild rice, but they're also doing work for all of us. For example, that lawsuit directly challenges and tries to interrupt the construction of the Line 3 pipeline, which is this, you know, tar sands pipeline by the Enbridge Corporation. And that case will have ramifications for all kinds of further pipelines, you know, that we're all challenging. So even the way we connect litigators, writers, advocates on the ground, blockadia, all of us, in some ways, like what we're doing, it all feeds like many little streams into a mighty, you know, river and then ultimately the ocean. And that is honestly what the work I'm most excited about. Yeah, it is thrilling work. And I think it's so important to continue to spotlight all of this work because the machine of the opposing side seems all-encompassing, right? It feels like their victories are as regular as the sun, as the sunrise. And it's like, there's all of these other things that are happening that I personally find amazing, but I also find challenged Mm -hmm. because I've done some work in in lectures and stuff around sustainability and gone to like what I would call like big Western sustainability events, right? Mm -hmm. And you never hear the conversation that that we're having to the extent that sometimes I'll be sitting in these rooms and I feel like we're not even in on the same planet. Mm -hmm. Like they're, they're talking to me about packaging and supply chains and just all this stuff where I'm like, what the fuck does this have to do with like anything that's relevant? And you're hitting me with like legal statute, right? Like fighting in like to make precedent that can be, you know, changed kind of the global way in which some of these legal frameworks are are established. And I don't know if you've come across that same frustration. So maybe I'm venting and and looking for like someone to kind of lean on their on your shoulder. Um, I'm curious if you've seen that same thing. Oh, for sure. I mean, God knows COP, the COP, the whole conference of the parties associated with the UNFCCC and the Paris Agreement, that entire process, you know, is sort of burdened by the weight of all the things that you're talking about. You know, we are in some ways, like, I think Arndati writes about this, actually. She, she writes about, like, it seems as if some, you know, sometimes that we are, as a human race, are all packed into a public bus, And we're hurtling over the edge of a cliff. And all we can do is bicker over which songs to sing on the way down. That's how a lot of it feels. You know, it does. I mean, whether it's like these regional meetings or even multilateral, like huge international meetings. I mean, a lot of that 
And I think what's happening and why you feel that way and why we feel that way so often is because we've sacrificed so much of, we've sacrificed intimacy. We are not even in relationship with each other. Hmm. I have never felt more alienated than when surrounded by thousands of people at these multilateral events or these huge conferences. A lot of the times it depends on what is the sort of spirit in which the people assembled have gathered. What is the intention? What is the purpose? Like, I mean, part of why I'm excited, I'm proud to be part of this, the growing global justice organization, Progressive International, is because our internationalism is intimate. You know, we are trying to not forsake that. We understand that we cannot run to each other's rescue if we are not actually in relationship with each other. Our, you know, our shared victories, you know, as well as losses. And all of that sort of the practice of solidarity, you know, that... You know, that is what is the really important work. Um, and yeah, and so like I totally feel what you're saying about a lot of these spaces that we're in. And especially as an indigenous person, a lot of the times it's like I realize what's really what's really happening is it's not just a war of like language, it's a war of paradigms. It's like mm-hmm. a, an entirely mutually irreconcilable conflict. And that because the, and that conflict revolves around worldview. Yeah. What does it mean to be human on the planet? What does it mean to be in good relationship with each other and with the earth? Like those are very, and they couldn't be more diametrically opposed. Yeah. You know, and so that is why I think you know so many of us feel so alienated from certain spaces, and that's why you know it's so important that we have all these writers, you know, and artists just making those connections across borders. It's it's critical. Yeah, it is. I recently just finished a couple of books. I reread a friend's book, Nick Estes's um, Our History mm-hmm. of Yeah. And I also just finished uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. And like, they both have so many different sort of distinct kind of intellectual contributions that they're making, you know, but I mean, again, it's across borders, but the lessons of the insights are absolutely operational, even in my context. You know, incredible works. Braiding Sweetgrass is among one of my favorites, buried in my pile of books everywhere. You're like, you're viewing just a portion of the books that are all over this house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not even getting to my storage unit. It's disgusting. Um, But... You know, it's it's funny you talk about this difference in language, and then I promise I'm going to get to Guam and the military and stuff, because a line that I that I kind of wrote down here, and it, and it comes very early on in the book, I think is in the preface, but it, it caught me right away is that you talked about it says here language and doing battle, and this as as much as I do try to I'll say on air, but sometimes I get feisty, you know try to not do the the military analogies, but I, I we are in a battle, right? And the way in which you framed that with putting language at the center of it, I found that to be really interesting. And I knew it wasn't just because you're a writer. Like language is is so critical to how we make sense of the world around us. And you talked about that importance of worldview. So I want to give you an opportunity to to share in your in your own words why that framing that language and doing battle was important enough to make it to the front of the book. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. You know, language is information. It contains instructions. You know, about like for example, my people. 
my people are quintessential cultural values reciprocity. And I know that because we have more words for, for reciprocity than virtually any other word, you know, and that's who we are. I mean, and so that's a really evidence of who we are. And so, you know, the language that we use, it, you know, it's language can be, you know, either like imprison us or liberate us. Sometimes when I say, sometimes imprison us, for example, it like connotes a certain framework. And then we get stuck in that framework because that framework is ill-equipped to, it's, or it's a hostile forum in which to advance certain arguments, like the language of the law. I don't mean just languages, but even like professions, whole fields, you know, of endeavor, like the legal language is incredibly limiting, you know, and the law as an institution maximizes order and predictability. So, you know, not justice. So when you are trying to advocate for justice in that form, you have to be very aware of the language you're using and all of its limitations. And, you know, and it's like that way with everything, you know, so, but language can also liberate us. If we find the right language we can access a new framework. And that new framework is the fertile soil in which to plant new things, new ideas, new ways of being together, you know, and organizing our societies and ultimately our global community. But yes, language couldn't be more important. And as a writer, you know, you just naturally hone in on not only your own use of language, but others' use of language. And you know very well when other people are wielding or deploying language in bad faith or for your nefarious purpose. Like, it's very easy to discern how one is using languages. Yeah. I, I thought about when you say deploying language for nefarious purposes, because a lot of corporate language is that way. It takes away our humanity. It, it takes away the, the shared way in which we exist on this planet. And it, it made me think of a, another piece of, of your book where you talk about the military. And I think this is a good segue to talk about the military, right? They're, they're not moved by small letters, mm. right? And in my own parentheses, I thought about how like people to me are like a small letter word, right? Like all of us as, as humans, we encompass so much, but we are, are so so a part of of everything on this planet though we try to separate ourselves from that and military and businesses they talk about things like assets right like they use those words with like big letters right and and ignore the small letters and and they ignore things like you know your eight spot butterfly right so i, I want to give you an opportunity to to share the the connection between the butterfly and the military and 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 then i'll get an opportunity to just kind of shit on the military <laughs> with, with more with more commentary <laughs> basically the u.s military is in the process of expanding its footprint here in guam and in fact in the surrounding islands the scale of the buildup is enormous i mean the u.s military has constructed a new marine corps base it's expanding its facilities. It's constructing a massive firing range complex in an area that's culturally and spiritually significant to my com my people. And, you know, that those ranges, the, the largest of which is a multi-purpose machine gun range, all of it is built dangerously close to the island's main aquifer that provides some over 80% of our fresh water resource. And so, like... And it entails the destruction of like over a thousand acres of limestone forests. And these forests are home to several endemic endangered species, 
including among them the endemic eight spot butterfly that I write about in the book. It's staggering to see what's happened to Guam, what's still happening. This all stems, just so you have some background context, from a 2005 decision by the U.S. government to transfer thousands of U.S. Marines currently stationed in Okinawa to Guam. So it's been a long battle in and out of the courts to sort of stop that Marines relocation project. But all of the associated construction activities, you know, they have really failed our limestone forests. And it's just been absolutely outrageous to see, you know, to see all of this happening. And of course, during COVID-19, when so much of sort of public sort of access to information, to meetings, to hearings, all of that was obviously so sharply curtailed during the COVID crisis. And do you think that made a single bit of a difference to the U.S. military? Absolutely not. They run roughshod over the people. I mean, they have just accelerated the sort of ex- this sort of con- these construction activities, and now it's certain portions of the island are hardly recognizable. And so, yes, eight ball butterfly is the many sort of non-human relatives that we have who have been directly imperiled by sort of what the activities of the U.S. military in Guam right now. And this is enraging to me. This is a, a perfect example of the long tail of abuse and just, I don't, I don't even have enough words to describe nefarious, right? We used that one already, so we'll use it again, right? The nefarious long tail outreach of the U.S. imperial project, right? Because I'm glad you mentioned Okinawa because it was in my notes, right? So mm-hmm. Okinawa, for, for those who are not adherence to the History Channel or like deep readers of history was one of the bloodier battles of the Pacific theater during World War II, right? Obviously, America came out on top with dropping two nuclear weapons on the Japanese and since then have had a long-standing military presence in Japan. And those nuclear weapons were, the launch pad was the island right north of Guam. So they, the U.S. military in tandem simultaneously is using our ancestral homelands as a sort of launching pads for all of this aggression to include, you know, these weapons of mass destruction being launched on civilian population. It is ghastly. I mean, you know, like, I mean, it's, I don't, I, I can't even describe sort of like the extent to which that is a morally corrosive set of facts, you know, to have your homeland be used and weaponized in this way. So it's not just about our own suffering, about our but our collective shared suffering, and you know, at the hands of the sort of endless, ruthlessly ceaseless military-industrial complex. Yeah, and it's a full circle project, right? Because America has had, like I was saying, a, a long-standing military presence in Japan. Japan is growing increasingly tired of that. I wish it was growing tired only from a moment of peace, but Japan is also getting a little bit more right-wing and wants to have its own military. That's the subject of another show. But they are pushing American military out of Okinawa, which is one of the the largest bases in in Japan. And so now it's kind of migrating its way to Guam, right? So it's like- That was definitely the conversation in the beginning, but do you know what's happened, Philip, now? We know that the, the in fact what's happening is that US um the US military presence is still alive and well in Okinawa. So it's like it's a 
it's a game because basically they're still keeping all of the, so many troops. And from what I hear, they're also still expanding other military connected facilities in Guam. I mean, in Okinawa, they're even building another sort of base. And I think they're even using like this um, soil or I think it's soil that actually contains the the human remains of all these other people who died yet in another battle to build this this new facility. So it's all a, a great game, you know, where the people, the people of Okinawa and the people of Guam are very similar in that we are pawns. Like it's like a constant and the goalposts keep changing midway through. And the US military just keeps acting with impunity. It's doing all of these things. It even just goes back on its own word, like so-called word repeatedly. So we just we just know what's happening, you know, and now it's just even more talk. Um, the, the Asia Pacific Theater is poised to become geopolitically the most important theater in the world. And what does that mean for the people on the ground? This is a, see what I mean about language? When it comes to U.S. war machine, these communities are yet another kind of frontline community. Yeah, it's terrible to behold and think about. And one of the things that another kind of nugget I'm going to say like my listeners can fact check this and we can fact check this later. But I think I've heard that, you know, Pacific Islanders, which is a very amorphous group that I know does not do service to the various groups and ethnicities within the Pacific Island and Guam included in other places. But I think Guam in particular has like per capita, one of the highest like membership in the U.S. military. Oh, yes. And killed in action rates. Yeah. It's like the, the colonial project is just stunning. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's you know, it's just staggering to think about all of it. You know, While we, also not having full rights of a state. Yes, I was about to say. Like, what is the, the actual sort of larger political backdrop against which all of these new current developments are happening? Is the fact that the Guam remains an, a colony of the U.S., I, and I mean exactly what I say that yeah. like the UN recognizes Guam officially as a colony, you know, that is being administered by the United States that is entitled to one day throw off the colonial yoke and emerge as its own entity to include the option of outright independence. Meanwhile, our ancestral homeland is being militarized to hell, you know, and this is all happening when the U.S. really should be ensuring our speedy transition toward full self-government. That could not, I mean, the opposite is happening, you know, we're entrenching the dependency as well as exacerbating our already sort of unequal situation. Like we don't vote for U.S. presidents. We, we like, and we also only, we don't even have voting representation in Congress. We send one non-voting delegate to the House of Representatives. Do you know what all of that means? I mean, all of these decisions are literally being made by people we just cannot vote for. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so this is this is classic colonialism. It's not even neo-colonialism. It, and it's just, it's outrageous, you know, in 2023. Yeah. I, I promised myself in my evening that I would not get incensed. But the, lo <laughs> the longer I go, like detail, even though they're my own questions, even as I detail it out, hearing hearing it from your from your mouth makes me even more furious because to and I'm not comparing our, our situations. I am sitting in the belly of the beast, right? I'm in New York. I can vote to the extent that the vote means anything. I have no idea, right? Like I would argue it doesn't mean much, but at least on paper, 
it does, right? And I and I feel angry and ashamed that these things are done under the auspices of like myself as a full citizen, right? A taxpayer, right? And it's gross to to live in in where we should be going in the opposite direction, right? We should be moving to a place that protects the the eight spot butterfly. Yeah, and honestly, Philip, the issues it's it's even bigger than that. Like we just mm-hmm. need a kind of long view. Like, you know, if we just had bigger, even political imaginations, like we, we just understand that we are, you know, careening toward catastrophe. Like we are like headed for it. I mean, we are five minutes away from it, you know, and we are still sort of doing this sort of this dance. We're still in the dance floor, you know, and doing this awful thing. I mean, right now you see it happening with climate change. It's so obvious that the U.S. military is the largest institutional consumer, you know, a producer of greenhouse gases, consumer of fossil fuels. The, the, what's happening in Guam, this dramatic expansion of U.S. military presence, it's catastrophic for climate change. You know, I mean, this, the U.S. military is a climate criminal, but it's still just going on, you know, and acting sort of just against all science. And and the worst part, it's not even just the U.S. military. Like, you know, I think, um, do you know that the, the U.S. military industrial complex used to be originally the original formulation was the uh, military industrial congressional complex where they dropped the last one i, I presumably because it was too long but the issue is that's what's happening congress itself not only does it approve of all of these shenanigans and sort of these war games but it actually adds money every time i mean if you follow the way these, these federal defense these, these authorizations these bills the Congress actually adds more money. I think they give the Pentagon more money than they've even asked for. Exactly. That's a high bar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're already asking for way too much. They're never accountable for how they spend their money. God knows that we've seen one story after another, you know, about sort of the mismanaging of money. Uh, but it doesn't even matter. You know, the beat goes on. And the Congress every time gives all of this money. So it's all just this big sort of, it's, it, I think we have to start seeing it as this sort of like all of these sort of players working in concert yeah. with each other. They're all bedfellows. So we have to be really like sort of train our activism on them too. I mean, and just get these sort of warmongering representatives out. Yeah, absolutely. And, y- and you talked about the limited imagination and, um, and imagination is, is something I, I talk about a lot. I, I published a piece at the time that we're recording this anyway. Um, this week talking about what I see as the limits of imagination when people talk about the future. And yet you've managed in your book to have it filled with imagination, not only about the future, but there's imagination in the stories that you tell about your dad. There's imagination in the commencement address that you discuss. And it felt to me as a reader that there's a fluidity in the way in which the past and the present and the future intersect in the way you're you're thinking about your place in the world and in your people's place in the world. And I, I want to get your reflection on that, your thoughts on that. No, I, I appreciate that. Your careful reading of the book, I mean, you know, because it is precisely because look what we just did. We critique the whole military industrial complex and and we understand how we got here. We need to get out. You know, we need to find a way out of the mess that we're in. And I, that's partly why I wrote the book Deliberty in this kind of way with its sort of um, 
wild assortment of different kinds of styles, including like vignettes from childhood. And, you know, even like mixing and mashing because it's, we kind of need to unsettle the way we've sort of have conversations about these big geopolitical things and from climate change to militarization and colonization, because it is so much like a hammer on the head, you know, often when we talk about this and even the facts and figures like it, there's, it's all too much and it's too loud and we're not able to like hear each other talk anymore. Like we can barely hear ourselves think. And that's why we need, sometimes we need to change it up and we need like different kinds of communication, different ways. We need to tell new stories. You know, that's what I was trying to do with this book. Tell this story, which is absolutely categorically a critique of militarism and colonization, but not in a traditional sense. You know, like I wanted to talk about the beauty of this place, the beauty of my people who have survived, you know, several centuries of uninterrupted colonization, but who still have a preciously singular worldview that's been a worldview that's been reared, you know, in this place for thousands of years. And, you know, humbly arguing that we have some insight, you know, about how to get out of the mess that we're in. So that's why the book is in some ways much more tender and soft Mm -hmm. than traditional, you know, sort of like, um, the traditional, like, I guess, literature. There's another line that I jotted down here in my notes. You, you say, um, perpetual light is the ancient beauty. And, you know, beauty and love are topics and terms that come up so often. And not only do I think that they're a, a counter to the sort of climate despair and the things that you highlighted earlier, but we start to be, build a counter narrative to the popular narratives that are out there that are so Western and so extractive, but are seductive, right? They're, they're talking about a different kind of beauty. And that ancient beauty that, that I highlighted, you know, I, I wanted to dive a little deeper into that because it, it felt, when I read it, it felt so much deeper than the beauty that is so often put front and centered in a, in a world that is just different in place to place, but also very connected, right? It's not an Instagram beauty, right? It's not this curated beauty. It, it felt different. And, and, I, and I wanted to, to give you a chance to kind of talk about that ancient beauty and how it connects to the, the work that you're doing. Well, I think the best way to get out of that question is just something else that we said earlier, that happiness and joy are not coterminous. They are just not the same thing. And, you know, the former is the cheap commodified version, you know? And then the second is usually a result of surviving hardship, you know? Like, like it, it, it has to survive. It has to struggle. It has to be earned. And I think it's the best way to describe this is just to talk about the butterfly herself. You know, the Mariana Aidspot butterfly. You know, she, you know, the monarch, the, her famous sister, <laughs> the monarch butterfly you know, so celebrated, widely in popular culture and, yeah. and, and gorgeous. I mean, she's absolutely, the monarch, I love monarch butterflies. But one of the things that I, I, I came across years ago was this, just this, this notion of how, like fo- following sort of the evolution uh, of uh, the different stages of life that a butterfly goes through, right? And the monarch butterfly, for example, has to go through five larval instars 
So five different, you know, periods. And I, and I realized in writing this book and talking to botanists and um, butterfly specialists, um, just, just, we've, I've done a ton of work. I mean, even with around, around restoring populations of the butterfly with the University of Guam. And one of the things that I learned is that our butterfly goes through six larval instars. She has to die six times in order to live. And I realized there it is. That is what I'm talking about. It is a respect for strength, not power. It's the differentiation of that. And I'm, like, this is what, the, what this country understands is power. You know, it is all about power, about projecting power. That's what it's doing right now in Guam and the surrounding islands. It talks about, even in that language, of projecting hard power in this part of the world, in part to contain China's rising influence in the region. But I realize in general, this country is, that is its jam. It's like the absolute, like endless accumulation of private wealth and power. That's what it does. And I was like, and it, so it cannot respect strength, only power. And I was like, this is, so it's like what I talked about earlier, like a paradigm shift. Indigenous peoples and our sort of like non-human relatives, you know, like, like this butterfly has a lesson to teach the world, you know, about strength and about being, you know, overcoming adversity, you know, and again, that is, it's a very powerful thing to distinguish the two. And I think that's what I'm trying to do with the book. I'm not just trying to write a critique about hard power. Like, I, you know, I'm trying to like identify and sort of wield soft power. Yeah. And it's, and it's, the, it's the soft power that matters. Right. It's the there's a, a beauty and a mysticism and 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 it's like so many of these terms have been so degraded by fucking Western assholes. But you know, you 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 talk about magic, you know, and it's a topic that comes up a lot. I try to bring it into my own work because I try to walk into, you know, corporate spaces and use the type of language that we're discussing, right? Because to me, it's the language that is so important and it's so essential to making a life worth living mm, mm-hmm. beyond the usual language that's that's used in again these 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 spaces that like you said they project power but no strength right they come from a place by and large of fear right the entire american military project is one of fear you know fear of the unknown fear of whatever and it just alienates everything from everything else you know so I am like this book and so many other books that that I feel particularly compelled by recently of late really has been those books that strive to do this other thing, you know, to get us to pay attention to strength, to resilience, to, you know, that all of these like stories allow us to access hope for the future, a future worth fighting for. Absolutely. And, and, it, and it reminds me of, I had these notes also written down here, that you reference so many different writers in, in the book that are meaningful and, and have been incorporated into your work. Toni Morrison, Alice Walker. We, we already, before we started recording, we already did our Arundhati Roy kind of fan, fan service <laughs> that the listeners did not have to sit through. Audre Lorde and so many others. And I found that so interesting at a time when here in the United States, these are writers that are under attack by, uh, by conservatives who don't believe that their voices 
um, should be used to impart lessons. And here I'm reading this book by an indigenous voice in Guam, incorporating these these voices in a completely different world space, but yet there's shared there's shared space, right? So if if anything, it it shows the vitality of of these folks' work. And you know, I, I wonder, like, how did you come to incorporate not just these artists, but so many others? And 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 it seems like there's such a vital part of your story while also having such a rich indigenous story to already pull from that you also reference, right? So it's like there's all these deep wells you seem to pull into. Yeah, no, you know, I mean, just even to go back to the sort of whole metaphor bridges, like I just thought right now, I just recalled them. Um, one of the OG books, this bridge called My Back. It was an anthology collected by Cherry Moraga, I think, and other feminist writers. It's just exactly this. We are pulling, we're drinking from the same well, like, you know, and like, there, it's just, you know, our, do we come from such distinct, not only literary, but cultural backgrounds, you know, that, you know, and traditions that all have sort of distinct insights that help us understand things that are very important, like power, like oppression, like systems of oppression, like, you know, inequalities, you know, like, 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 principles of anti-subordination, you know, all like principles of anti-commodification, like all of these um, traditions, you know, they, they have something to say to each other. And often we build on each other's work. I mean, that's sort of what I was doing too. Like I was just being honest about the fact that also my own intellectual development has been so largely formed by writers and thinkers and artists from different traditions. And I sort of openly like, and sort of widely embraced all of them in the book in these little footnotes, you know? And I was trying to do something in the book that was a little different. I was trying to not hide. I just didn't want the book to have any shadowy corners, you know? I I just didn't want to hide anywhere. I wanted it to be transparent and to openly declare my love for people, you know, and places, you know? And then be be okay with that because we're so, we're so busy being fancy, you know, being or being clever, or being sophisticated. It's those things are just, you know, the God, I mean, the, <laughs> the amount of time and energy we spend doing those things is, is pretty mind blowing. And so I just didn't want to do any of them. I just didn't care about the rules. I just don't care that it sounds in certain, certain points sound like fangirls or that I have a, a love letter to R and Dottie Roy disguised as a footnote. I don't care because they all, you know, they added such sort of like such monumental contributions to sort of, you could call the canon of resistance, you know, they offered them and I have received their gifts, you know, and tried to pass them along and add my own, you know, and that's what we're all called to do in the end, to add to the treasury, the collective wealth, which includes, you know, writers because we are impoverished when it comes to language and frameworks we are we're we are still impoverished and we need more so i just wanted to point young readers especially to all of these traditions absolutely i i consider myself still a young reader though i'm not and um <laughs> i i appreciate those gifts and i appreciate those references they they really each time i, I read a footnote it made me smile so <laughs> um 
I loved it. I, I want to use the time we have remaining to kind of get to the last two sections of the show, um, which the first one is off the dome, which are just of, of rapid fire questions. The first thing that comes to mind, kind of, okay. sort of, uh, and I only have three. All right. And the first off the dome question is what is one thing about Guam that you would love to leave our listeners with? If you could impart one thing about Guam for our listeners, what would that be? Oh, wow. Okay, just just the beauty of the, the beaches here and the coastlines. They're just stunning to hear the power of the sea. Absolutely. I, I, I would love to see it myself, maybe one day. Um, my second off the dome, if you can collaborate with a someone that you would consider a a role model or inspiration. We've talked about many writers, for example, over the course of the show. Who would that person be? God, so many. Arnaud Roy, for, for sure. But also even um, people like Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, who, who also, she's, who's awesome and works in the climate space. I would just love to work. And I'd also, there's so many other indigenous groups like NVN Collective I'd love to work more with. Okay, absolutely. And you're someone who, and this is my final off the dome question, then we'll get to the drop. You're someone who, from reading the book, has been greatly inspired by so many people in your, in your family, in your community, an extended community, global community. If you can think of one single piece of advice that you've gotten that have stayed with you from one of those sources, what would that be? Oh, just respect. To really, you know, the, the the whole notion of respect and like, and how to really have respectful conversations that are tough conversations. It's, it's sometimes it's hard to, you know, hold on to that, that cultural imperative of respect when you're having very difficult conversations. But some of my elders have pointed that out to me and I, I found it very, very valuable. That's awesome. Respect is, is something that sometimes when we get angry is hard. So yeah. I can, I can appreciate that we are all human and we fall short, but respect is always a good one. So I want to get to the final segment of the show, which is called a drop. And the drop is an opportunity for us to share anything with our listeners. It can be literally anything, book, a song, a piece of work, anything at all. And, and I'll go first. My drop is, is one that I've given before, but I feel given the political climate in the United States where fascist assholes like Ron DeSantis are trying to shut down what people can read in Florida, and this is a, as a longstanding conservative project, that I implore everyone to, you know, become part of their local library mm. and, and not just go out and get a library card and use their library. I'm someone who is on the record as spending a lot of time in, in libraries here in New York. I work from libraries very often. I write from libraries very often. I sit in libraries very often. So I'm a library proponent. I wouldn't be who I am today without libraries, but get involved in the administration and boards of your libraries. Those are the people who are going to kind of chart the course for the resources, for the books. And it's more than just having a library card. So if, if one is so served or called to serve in that capacity, please get involved in your local library. So that is my drop to push everybody toward their libraries. <laughs> so nice, nice. You're up, my friend. Sure. God, I've read so many good books recently, but one of them that that I really loved was uh, most recently was Nuclear Family by Joseph Hahn. 
it's just an amazing story about this uh, Korean family in Hawaii during around the time of this like sort of accidental al- alert for a nuclear test in Hawaii. Um, but it, it has a lot in there. But it's just, I also, the reason why I love it so personally and selfishly is because he has this character named Peter in it where he's, it's, I've never seen in literature like this, like just such an amazing, such rich and detailed description of a tomorrow from Guam. Like, because, you know, like, so there's a character in there and that you get all of this sort of conversation and he smuggles in a critique of U.S. militarization of both Hawaii and Guam and Korea for that matter, into the book. So the book is an amazing novel in and of itself, but it's also just this great way to smuggle in difficult conversations with typical readers. And I just loved it. I loved it. I think the book is incredible. That's awesome. Like, yeah, I would love that. Okay, I'm definitely going to check that one out. It's, it sounds it sounds like it's right up the, the alley of my listeners, <laughs> believe me. Julian, I want to I want to thank you on your Friday morning and my Thursday night um, for joining me on the deep dive. The book again, No Country for Eight Spot Butterflies, is an an amazing piece of work that is is deeper than its pages than its page count. I want to thank you again for taking the time and also for doing the work that you do, not just as an author but as a as an activist and someone fighting on the front lines for the future of our planet and for all of all of, of the species and beings that live on it. So thank you so much for the work that you do and thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much too. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.